You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I want to talk to you about uh, what it looks like to hold a grudge for too long. In 2005, the New York Times put out this story that called Philadelphia the sixth borough um, because New York has five, and so they thought we were the sixth. We're not over it. (laughs) We're still offended at this. You know, it was an article that, uh, you know, told us how New Yorkers commute here and we commute there. We make the 75-minute train ride. And, you know, the the Times has been criticized by by pro-Philadelphians for characterizing us as a New York obsessed. And maybe we are because we're still not 13 years removed. We're still... Still not over it. And you know, we've been a little defensive. I mean, right? You know, this is, this is eight years later. We're still writing about it. <laughs> we still care. And there's something about Philadelphia and its non, non-cosmopolitan status that gives us a sort of identity, you know, because we're not one of the world cities in the uh, in the United States. And the disregard with which the New York Times treated us is actually part of who we are. We get disrespected. I'm gonna get a little offensive now. People say Boston's better. That's offensive. How could that be possible? Boston? People say Chicago is better. Did you ever try to get a pizza in Chicago? They give you a lasagna. And it's completely, you guys don't even know what's happening. And don't get me started, I mean, there's other places. Don't get me started in the Pacific Northwest either. You know, the whole, you know, Philly's where it's at. That's, that's my feeling about it. Um, and I'm a Philly guy, my friends know, and I'm trying to get everybody to move here. They even made a meme about it. You know, my friends that uh, <laughs> I, I so incorrigibly uh, try to get my friends. What's that? I did not make this. Someone made it for me. Anyway, I want, I want everyone to move here. And earlier this year, we got really excited, and, 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 and the sports don't matter too much here. Jason Kelsey, the Eagles offensive lineman, told millions, what seemed to be billions, gathered on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway that we were underdogs. You remember this Super Bowl, uh, uh, post-Super Bowl victory speech? He told us, no one likes us. And, and this was, a, and, and that we didn't care. We, can't, I mean, we keep saying it so we might care because you keep saying you don't care. So sometimes it's like, well, do you care? Why do you keep talking about it? You know, and the whole country heard that phrase and helped move us in a better trajectory because even as a fan base, we've been uh, stereotyped and uh, typecast as mean people, bitter people, just because we threw snowballs at Santa once. Ice balls, yes, see, or batteries at J.D. Drew, you know. Part of me is like, you know, what's, who hasn't thrown batteries at J.D. Drew? You know what I mean? Come on. So we, we take it personally. We take it personal, as we say. People think cheesesteaks suck. They think pretzels go stale too fast. They think Rocky's overrated. That's why Kelsey said that stuff. No one likes us. We don't care. I have a... I have, uh, you'd be surprised to hear this, I think. I have a neoliberal friend. I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, 
who works in a downtown real estate firm, like a big commercial firm selling big properties to people that are uh, trying to buy them downtown. And she's on a committee, and she asks me, I'm, we're trying to rebrand Philadelphia because we don't really have a much of a countrywide world status because we're sick of the cheesesteaks and Rocky and the whole thing. And I was like, hey, that's us. Don't rebrand me. Anyway, she's trying to make it more popular for transplants, so we're still on the same kind of uh, move to Philly vibe. I don't have a strategy beyond saying that, and she does, so it, could, it, might, benefit, it might benefit us. However... I like us how we are. I, I like being the down and out. I, I don't, I, I don't want to be the, the best city. I like being who I am. I like being where I am. Um, and there's something about, and I'm overstating this, of course. This is all kind of in jest, but kind of. There's, there's something about an identity that's formed out of uh, the, the mistreatment of the world that makes, that makes us something as Philadelphians. And I'm including everybody here. If you're here right now, you're a Philadelphian. And, and, and I bring this to you because this common narrative, this common negative experience helps to make Philadelphia what it is. Being rejected can become a part of who you are. And there are people who are actually rejected and oppressed that have an identity that's rooted in their um, experience of oppression and their liberation from that oppression. Now, now Philadelphia as a whole doesn't have um, specific oppression to any serious degree, but there are people certainly here that do. You know, the city as a whole, you know, we joke about it. But Thinking about how a negative experience or a negative stereotype or a stigma can form you is helpful when you're trying to relate to people. Um, we're talking about how journeys and experiences and living together form us into a people and move us toward uh, God's ultimate promise for us. That's the movement we're on. And we'll get to the promise we're moving through. This is, this is kind of the second week of what we're doing here. We'll get to it by Thanksgiving. So it's not that far away. Thanksgiving isn't far, by the way. If you think it is, it's coming. If you haven't planned your, uh, order your turkey now. You know, it's, it's time to start. I started meal planning for Thanksgiving today. That was a big accomplishment. Um, and I told my mother the next time she would see me was Thanksgiving, and that felt soon to me. It did not feel soon to her. So that was our discussion. Anyway, we'll get to the promise by Thanksgiving, and I'll see my mom. We're, I hope she listens. We're, we're journeying through the Bible to see how these paths and experiences have formed, um, formed the people in the Bible and also to give us a sense of our own identity and journey and our place in the mission today. So the story starts with God promises Abraham a nation. Abraham um, leaves his tribe and starts a new one. He has many children. He has a blessing. He has Isaac and um, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and we won't chronicle the whole story now, but Joseph's the spoiled son of Jacob, and, uh, and he uh, gets some sort of leadership-style position in Egypt, and eventually all of his brothers follow him. Basically, that's how the book of Exodus opens, and the narrator continues and tells us that Joseph and his brothers died. However, despite their death, the Israelites, this tribe that was formed, multiplied and became fruitful and filled the whole land of Egypt and the, uh, and the, greater, land, the greater area. And so there's a people group that's thriving and growing, and the ruling class is feeling threatened by them. Familiar narrative, right? 
um, and, and, and Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites as a result. And then he tells them, Pharaoh's like the king of Egypt, he tells them to kill the baby boys um, by throwing them in the Nile. This is after he tries to get the midwives to kill baby boys that are being birthed, but the midwives say, no, these Israelite women are real robust, and they just, they just give babies before we even get there. They deliver the child before the midwife can get there, and we are robbed of our chance to murder the baby. So one, this, this, is, this, is all, this is all in there. And so one day, the, uh, a Levite woman gives birth to Moses, hides him away, and eventually sends him floating off in a papyrus basket, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and Pharaoh's daughter feels sorry for him. And then she gets a Hebrew slave to, uh, to nurse the, the baby, feed him, and then Pharaoh's daughter basically adopts him. And then Moses grows up um, with some Egyptian stature, but he still remembers he's a Hebrew. And one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and then one verse later, he kills him. Someone out loud. This is kind of what I just summarized there. Moses is spared and then grows as an Egyptian, sees the Hebrew getting beat by an Egyptian. And someone out loud read this uh, Exodus 2 11 to 12. Later, after the killing, he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrew dudes, and they remind him, and they say to him, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he freaks out, and he, he develops a sort of reputation. He realizes he has a reputation for killing people. Pharaoh finds out about him, tries to drive him out of the land, and so, like any other sensible person, he uh, moves to the suburbs. <laughs> and he runs away from the greater Egypt and makes a life for himself successfully as a shepherd, and eventually Pharaoh dies. And after Pharaoh dies, in the backdrop of this, the Israelites cry out about their slavery. And God hears the cry of the oppressed. God hears people who are suffering. It's the same motif that we referenced last week with, uh, with um, Hagar, who cried out in the wilderness. And God heard her and delivered her and Ishmael and promised them a land of their own and a people of their own. Now God is going to do the same for the Israelites. And as the writer tells us here, it's because of the covenant. It's because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the writer is connecting what we heard in Genesis to what we have in Exodus here. I just summarized this little text. And so God calls Moses to go back and free his people. His people, Moses' people. And he has some hesitation um, and, and, and you could give a whole kind of message about that. He encounters the great I am in a burning bush that doesn't, that doesn't stop burning, and then Moses agrees. And so now we have the conflict of the story. We have the uh, enslavement of the Israelites by the Egyptians, and then their would-be liberator, protagonist, Moses, sent by God to free them. So Moses goes up to, Moses goes up to Pharaoh with his brother Aaron, his spokesperson, basically, and says, free my people, and Pharaoh adamantly says no. And then, as a result of Moses even daring to ask him this question, he increases the toil on the Israelites and makes them collect their own straw to make the bricks for which they were forced to make. So they were brick makers, but at least the Egyptians would bring them the straw, and now, no, you have to go fetch your straw too. We're increasing the toil. And so... 
Here's, here's how it went down in the story. The first two verses in chapter 4 are Moses and Aaron addressing Pharaoh, and then Moses responds to God after that. Someone read the first section here, 4, 1 through 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the law of the God of Israel says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Someone else, a woman this time. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Love the dialogue there for a moment, right? You went and told me to tell Pharaoh this, he made things worse for them. What gives? What's happening? Why, why are you, this seems like a raw deal. And this reveals more about the conflict of the story because it begins with one of God being compassionate on the enslaved people and then it moves toward God's opposite, uh, promised deliverance despite opposition. God, the great I am, which is what God names uh, God's self in that encounter with the burning bush, is moved to defend God's self and God's people against Pharaoh, the Egyptians oppressing the Israelites, and even against the gods of Egypt. A big part of this story is a drama between the gods of the land and the God I am will, will uh, triumph and be uh, superior at the end of it, the only one meant to be worshipped, right? Um, no one will be like God. You can see that. You'll, if, if you get that in your mind, that little refrain, you'll see it throughout the Old Testament. You are the only God worthy of worship, right? And so you, you're living in a context where there were other options of gods to worship, but God, the I am, reigns supreme. And so God will demonstrate God's authority, not just by freeing the Israelites and killing Pharaoh's army, but also by, by hosting plagues that specifically counter the gods of Egypt. This is a major theme in the Old Testament, that Israel is a humble nation empowered by God. God will not be mocked by any opposing force, and those who join opposing forces will suffer and be plundered. Um, so when Israel sometimes does ally with evil forces for the sake of its own uh, progress, God punishes Israel. So that's a little prophecy for people today that ally with uh, forces that are not of God. And you can see this intensity even in this scene, right? What follows here, God sends Aaron and Moses to perform a miracle to demonstrate God's authority. And so Aaron takes his staff and it turns, turns it into a snake. Big dramatic thing that happens. And then Pharaoh and his wise sorcerers and wise people do the same thing. But then, but then... Um, Aaron's staff is uh, swallowed up by their staffs, and so there's a competition happening here. Oh, swallowed up their staffs, right. So the this, this, this snake ate the other snakes that came. That's the idea. There's a, there's a, there's a competition here between the spiritual powers, and, 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 and God will not be besmirched. There's, an, uh, there's a major honor component here that you might not be so familiar with. But Pharaoh's heart remains hard, 
and then what follows is a, uh, a variety of plagues to which I only reference two. Uh, one is the, uh, the, 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 the plague of blood, which fills up the Nile with blood, like the red tide in Florida right now, own little plague happening there. You know, Florida stinks right now, like literally, because of all the fish that are dying. You guys know about this? Yeah, because they're throwing the fertilizer in and all sorts, they're polluting the environment, which is feeding some sort of thing that shouldn't be as, as, uh, as alive as it is, and then it's hurting, it's ruining the whole ecosystem. And it happens, they anticipate it sometimes, but this is a lot more intense than it usually is. Similar kind of thing here, the, the, the blood of the, uh, the blood fills the Nile and actually besmirches here the god of the Nile. And then there's a plague of frogs which is an insult to the uh, god of childbirth and fertility, who actually looks like a frog, if you can see here on the old Egyptian uh, inscription. And so there's, there's some symbolism happening here that helps you see the competition. Karina, you really love that, don't you? You can laugh at it. Come on, girl. It's fun. So God is demonstrating God's power not just as a warning sign to the Egyptians, but rather as a claim to superiority a claim to be the one worthy of worship. No king, no demigod, no uh, a god or any other power is worthy to be worshipped uh, um, in front of God. And the same is true today. So, so we don't live in a world where uh, you, you think of other gods to be worshipped, but there are certainly other things to be loyal to, other things that provide for you like God should, and God is uh, jealous of those things. And so when you see that kind of uh, idolatrous worship, you can name it, and you can know. No, this is, and I, I won't get too specifics about the examples, but you can uh, let your imagination go, and we can talk about it later. So finally, Pharaoh relents and allows Moses and the Israelites to leave. This is after chapters and chapters of plagues. And, and, and the final plague that causes uh, Pharaoh, to, Pharaoh to relent is the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt. Now, we started with Pharaoh killing the first, the, the, the baby boys, and now we end with more killing of the firstborn, not just babies, anyone who is a firstborn. First, any firstborn people here? Yeah, all dead in this. <laughs> I, and I'm not, I, you laugh at it now, um, but it is gruesome and brutal, right? And I, I want to approach the, the, the passage here because I don't want us to shy away from the, from the parts of the Bible that make our stomach churn. So let's read this out loud. Someone, some brave soul. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go. Also, bless me. Little nice addition there. <laughs> nice addition, and also bless me. You might be uncomfortable at this point in the story because you're reading a story where the God that we purportedly worship is killing people. Killing every, every single household in Egypt has a dead person in it. But think for a moment if you're reading this like you're an Egyptian or you're like an Israelite. It's hard to read this in the United States. It's hard to read this when um, 
in many cases, it would appear um, like we won, right? The United States has a large Christian history, heritage, there's power there, there's a lot there. And so for us, in our context, it's hard to read this and see anything but more brutality. You know, It's hard to make it through um, the Crusades, for example, um, and, 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 and think, no, this is how God intends to do things. But if you're reading it like you're an Israelite, if you're leading, reading it like you're an oppressed group by an, oppressed, by an oppressive nation, if you're enslaved, you begin to see the whole story differently. So mind your vantage point as you're reading this, and it'll help you read it in, in, in a way where, God, where, that, where you crave the liberation as opposed to reject what you might uh, read as oppression. Does that make sense? Are you following that little, uh, how you might be able to read this in a way that um, helps you understand how, how this could be encouraging to a group of people? So after leaving, Pharaoh has a change of heart, of course, and pursues them. And when they encounter the Red Sea, Charlton Heston famously splits the Red Sea. Ever seen the Ten Commandments here? Yeah. See this movie? It's on every Easter. You come home after the Sunday meeting and turn it on, it'll be on like, for some reason it seems like every channel has the Ten Commandments on. You ever see this? I don't know why, because it's like a religious style holiday. Yeah, it's usually around the same time as Passover, but it's on the Sunday, right? So it's, I guess that's, there's a connection, but you know, I, have a lot, I have a lot of opinions about this. Christians sometimes love this story. Um, so he parts the, Moses parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites travel through it, and the sea comes toppling down on the Egyptians, killing all of them. Just this is the climax of the story, so I really want us to, to get into it one more time. Just these uh, seven verses that are here. It's three paragraphs, so you might be able to commit to all of it. Someone out loud. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night... The Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on the right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. So, so far in the story, God has jammed up their chariots and they can't move as fast as they want to. And then... Keep going, Kevin. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And then at the end, at the beginning of chapter 15, Mar Miriam, Moses' sister, and Moses sing a song that is a joyous song.
And the refrain is, sing to the Lord, for he is almighty. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. That's the refrain that comforts them. God frees the Israelites from their enemy and plunders their enemy, making God's name the only name to be worshipped and exalted and ultimately promises a home and deliverance for Israel. God's covenant with Israel is emboldened by this act and God's justice prevails. And God, 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 what, what, what we know is that God will free God's people and God will liberate God's people. Israel is a down and out nation. No one likes them. It's a, it's a history that they have full of conquest. It's never, Israel is never a military superpower. But God provides for the lowly nation. And, and, and this story, this story sustains it. It's what Jewish celebrate when they observe Passover, just like we were saying. It's their breath. It's their comfort. God delivers we can trust God and not in our own might because God won't forget us and God hears our cry. This is an, an elemental part of the breath. And you'll see this. We're not going all the way there today. Jesus reinvents what Passover means. And we begin to observe communion in the same way, in the same breath. But... That's not where we are right now. And I want, I want to just hold your suspense for a second. Because you might read a story like this. And you might really like to get to Jesus to make it feel better. If it feels uncomfortable for you, just let it for a moment. It's not cosmically uncomfortable because of the work that the Lord has done. It's just uncomfortable now. At least that's, that's how you might take it. So why, because why is this story important? It was told for years, but we generally think that its final form came in about the 6th century BCE during a period of Babylonian captivity. And so when, it, when, when the story came and was written down and was used, it was during Babylonian captivity when the southern kingdom Judah was overtaken by Babylon. This is after, uh, if you know your Bible, this is after Saul, David, and Solomon, after the kingdom split, after the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and then 500 years later, Judah is overtaken by Babylon, and Israel once again finds itself in captivity, and not unlike they did in Egypt, they're again in captivity. You can see that they cry out to God who will deliver them. This story has uh, a contemporary meaning to who, who is reading it first because they are also in captivity. The Babylonians are taking them over. How can we sing to God in a strange land? You know the, you might know the Psalm 139, which ends brutally, by the way. And they're comforted by the story and they're comforted by its power. The story sustains them. The people are, of Israel are formed by their deliverance. Deliverance and liberation forms a whole group of people. And the same is true today for a lot of people. God makes a people in a nation of, 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 of adherence through liberation, through liberating the Israelites from Egypt. They have a mark on them and an experience, and they'll continue to get tossed to and fro, and God will deliver them, and God will be faithful. 
There's always a remnant of hope that they have because they remember what God did. And whenever they start messing with that identity, they get in trouble. They are who they are, and God is who God is. God, uh, God particularly selected them because of their lowliness and freed them as a demonstration to the whole world. They are who they are. God is who God is. I am that I am. The relationship, the covenant between God and, and, God, and, and God's assured deliverance of his people is marked on them. They remember the covenant. In fact, through us, the, the circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And I'm telling you this because when you start reading the New Testament, you realize what all the freaking out about circumcision is. They're not all obsessed with foreskin. It means something to them. And so he, and, 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 and this, this covenant is remembered, this deliverance is remembered through the Passover. So the Israelites' journey through Egypt, their journey through the Red Sea and onto the Promised Land is a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's elemental to their identity, and it's elemental to ours, too. We hold on to the story as well. We hold on to the deliverance. That means in our trial and difficulty, in our oppression, whether it's existential oppression, or very personal. We know that God delivers us and is faithful to us. That means in marital problems, in, in your post-divorce wake, in the wake of your friend's divorce, in your societal oppression, God delivers you still. And, and, and you might doubt that because you haven't experienced such theatrical delivery, such theatrical deliverance, such palpable liberation in your life and you think there's no way I'll ever, uh, ever achieve this. And that's why I brought to you that little date. The Hebrew people in Babylon under captivity trusted that God would be faithful, not because they had personally experienced this story. They were a thousand years removed from it. You know, we think the literal exodus happened like in 1500 BCE, and it came to its final form in the, in the, in the sixth century. That's a thousand years difference after the events that documented happened. And so there are people who are believing this story and holding on to it who have never experienced it. And it still is delivering them and is still sustaining them. And it's still sustaining them to, to, to this day. And we have the same story to hold on to in exactly the same way that they did. Hold on to good stories. Don't let the bad ones overtake you. Don't let your despair overtake you. Live in the story. God will deliver us. God will deliver you from whatever is oppressing you. Whether it is something personal, your student debt, your depression, your anxiety, um, a complicated relationship you have in your family. If that is the Egyptian oppressing you, God is there. God has showed that God will be faithful. So I pray we can foster the faith we uh, really need to hold on to that. Hold on to that promise because it takes faith to do it. Because some days you just won't have the evidence to. You might be stuck in your own Babylon wondering if God is going to deliver you again. Let the story hold you. Let's say a prayer and do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here and for being present, for giving us a story to live into, to believe, to hold on to in a season where we need hope, in a season where you, we might feel oppressed and in need of liberation.
Show us where you are, Lord. We're looking. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.